This is Trepwire Week in Review for week ending March 31st, 2023. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Henry, Head of Siri and Advisory Services. This week, the White House called for stricter rules for mid-sized banks as lawmakers sifted through what happened with recent bank failures. While Fed speakers this week seem to stick to the inflation-fighting rhetoric. And on the economic data front, fourth quarter GDP was revised down to 2.6% growth. Home prices eased their year-over-year trajectory, and consumer confidence ticked up. Tomorrow, of course, is the end of the month and the quarter. And Manus, what a quarter. Layoffs, inflation, Fed hikes, and bank turmoil. How did we do? Well, I think you just summed it up, didn't you? You gave us the litany of bad news that really weighed on us this last 90 days or so. It's been brutal, right? We went into these last 90 days with enough headwinds to make things concerning. Shrinking earnings, higher interest rates, inflation. So we started the quarter really on uneven footing and things just really got even quick sandier. Is that a word? More quick sandy-like uh, over the last uh, month in particular. So I think that that's it's been a quarter like we haven't seen in a while. So I think from my own personal point of view, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I think if you read the stock market over the last week or two, we've seen a nice rally. Uh, there were headlines today on CNBC and Bloomberg that the NASDAQ is either in or approaching bull market territory at this point. And I'm not there in any way, shape, or form. I look at earnings continuing to be compressed, inflation continuing to be uncomfortably high, the Fed unable to take steps to reduce that, and that all coming at a time where capital is constrained both by the capital markets and by banks. So when you add it all up, it leads to what I think may be an equally rocky second quarter. We'll find out starting in a week or two as these earnings start to roll in. But the thing I would point out, I went back and looked at the chart for 2008, that window between when Bear Stearns failed and when Lehman Brothers failed. There was a window of about six or seven months there between those two seismic events. And if you notice, in the aftermath of the Bear Stearns failure, stocks were up 15% in the subsequent two weeks after that. And I really wonder if that's where we are right now. I think that I don't want to use that uh, shoe metaphor anymore. I got to come up with a, a different one. But I do think that there will be further ramifications for midsize and smaller banks that are seeing heavy, heavy deposit outflows right now. We know that that number is north of 120 billion already. And I don't think the feds did a lot of favors for the smaller banks this week by saying we're going to have more regulation and more oversight, honestly. I think SVB was an outlier in terms of its poor management and its heavy ALM mismatch. But I think all these other banks could be caught up in this whirlwind of just the flushing out of deposits. And that's not bad management. That's a bad situation. And piling on at this moment, I don't think is favorable to anybody. 
Yeah, that's an interesting take, Manus. I mean, it seems like a lot of these banks that probably were being run soundly that were caught up in just the reaction from, you know, depositors pulling their money out are going to get caught up in this. And that's probably not a great thing. It's interesting as Martha went through the lead in, you know, layoffs, inflation, Fed hikes and bank turmoil. Yet we see consumer confidence ticked up. So it's just really interesting. I mean, like, and you're saying the, the stock market has rallied amidst all of the stuff that we've talked about for the last couple of weeks. It's it's just really interesting to, to watch behavior over the last few weeks. I mean, things that you might think make logical sense. Uh, seems like the markets sometimes do the opposite of that. So Martha mentioned White House recommendations for some new rules. And so I'll give you a couple of bullets from here. The White House said they, they are going to call for new rules from the Federal Reserve and other banking regulators the specific application to banks in the 100 to 250 billion in asset range. They're, they're proposing tougher capital and liquidity requirements, as well as steps to strengthen the stress test and assess the, the bank's ability to weather hypothetical severe downturns. I do think I've read some stuff this week that some of the stress scenarios have appeared to be too predictable in the sense that they tested things that had maybe happened in the past, but there wasn't a lot of flavor in some of the testing. And interest rates, as an example, wasn't something that that was part of the equation. They're confident that these additional regulations can be accomplished under existing law, according to the White House. And then uh, Michael Barr, vice chairman of uh, supervision at the Federal Reserve, he was quoted a lot this week. He said he anticipates the need to strengthen capital and liquidity standards for firms with more than $100 billion in assets. And he you know, says, like Silicon Valley Bank, which which ties in nicely with the White House recommendation. Uh, he really pushed back, though, on the notion that the 2019 pullback of uh, regional bank regulations were the cause of SVB and, you know, basically, I think, tied it to some mismanagement and so forth. So he actually gives some additional detail on the bank run. Barr said the, the morning of uh, March 10th, the bank let them know that they expected an outflow to be vastly larger on client requ requests than what was in the queue. Total of $100 billion was scheduled to go out the door that day. The bank did not have enough collateral to meet that. He added that was in addition to the $42 billion in deposits that had flooded the bank in the six-hour period the day before. So we're talking about you know sizable outflows. And then according to the testimony, Fed supervisors issued six warnings near the end of 21. And in May of 22, there were two more. And that was followed by a downgrade of the bank's management rating in the summer of last year. And a meeting in October with bank senior management, you know, they were quoted as saying essentially the bank's risk model was not aligned with reality. So to your point, Manish, I mean, I think you, you kind of drove it home by saying it appears at least today, Silicon Valley Bank might have just been an outlier based on their profile and the way they had been managed. Yes, when I hear you guys rattle off those, you know, the litany of bad things we saw the last month, you know, we're in the the religious period for many different religions, right? Ramadan, Passover, Easter week, all coming up. I expected pestilence and boils and lice and asps and other things, locusts, to be added to the end of that litany there. So I'm grateful that we stopped with layoffs and unemployment. So if we want to transition a little bit, First Citizens Bank shares, there was an announcement this week that they've agreed to acquire the Silicon Valley Bank deposits, about $56.5 billion in deposits, and $72 billion worth of loans at a discount of what's being reported of $16.5 billion, according to the FDIC. So the transaction excludes $90 billion of Silicon Valley Bank securities portfolio. Um, so that portfolio will remain in receivership. 
First Citizens was the 30th largest bank in uh, December 31 of 22, with just over 109 billion in assets. And this takes the Raleigh firm to one of the top 15 U.S. banks with the acquisition. Yes, people have been pinging me either in email or phone calls or texts asking me when we're going to start seeing some of this price discovery. And we know that the FDIC has tapped Newmark to try to get rid of some of these orphaned signature bank assets that are out there. They're said to be from the multifamily segment in New York, assets that are behind rent-controlled buildings. And I think that will be an enormous tell for this market, what that appetite is for these assets that Newmark is trying to send out there. And for people looking to determine whether this is 2008 in terms of resetting of asset values, or if it's more like early 2020, that will be a big sign of what we're looking at. In 2008, of course, assets were going for 30 and 40 cents on the dollar. In 2020, people were expecting to have big discounts at the beginning of COVID, and those big discounts never materialized. This is another crisis that will get a sense of how deep that pool of liquidity is and how fast the triggers are for those that traffic in distressed assets. We'll find out very soon. And this ties to a question that we got from a listener. We don't normally start so early in the pod with a question, but it was in relation to the assets regarding signature loans. And in multiple publications, they've been called toxic assets. And the question was, what exactly makes a toxic asset? You want to take a crack at that first, Lonnie? You want me to go? Yeah, I can jump in on this one. Before I jump in on the toxic assets, though, I wanted to make a funny that I saw on Twitter with the announcement of Newmark being tapped to sell these loans and you saying the repricing or the price discovery. If you just split that word in half, it's effectively a new mark to market. So we don't know if that was part of the FDIC's decision making in um, tapping them to uh, determine that new mark in value. But to the toxic asset question, um, it's interesting. You know, Generally, Toxic assets are those that are considered to be difficult or almost impossible to sell. And that's because the demand that drives the value has collapsed. So if there's no willing buyers and there's no willing lenders, then you have a conundrum where you have assets that really have no you know, value in the marketplace. And it's not often that we see those things happen in conjunction. Usually when an asset class falls out of favor, it potentially provides opportunity for somebody to come in and buy an asset at a discount do some extensive renovation or repositioning, and then you know create some viability for that asset going forward. In the case of signature banks, you know loan portfolio that consists of these rent-controlled multifamily units, I think the market's telling us there's really no upsets going forward, and they're really not sure that at any price at this point that they can buy those with the opportunity to drive value creation. So I, I think this is somewhat of a snapshot view Things that are out of favor today may not necessarily be out of favor tomorrow or six months from now or 12 months from now. So the term toxic asset to me, I think, is a some, somewhat of a moving target in the sense that there may be unmovable today, but at some point they might find favor with the market again. And a lot of times this is caused by a couple of things. It could either be an externality, uh, which is just really something outside of the control of an individual owner. So our group of owners, they just don't have the control to rem remediate whatever the issue is, whether it be 
physical, functional, economic, et cetera. And then sometimes there's just a psychological stigma attached to certain assets. And it's really hard for buyers in the market to get over that, you know, and so the, the assets sit there until either the market turns or there becomes a second highest and best use for that land and they can buy them, tear them down and build whatever is uh, currently the highest and best use. Yeah, I think that in the current environment, if you're cash flow positive, like these multifamilies would be, right? Everybody is 90%, 95% occupancy. You're really just haggling over price. You're trying to get it at a price for which your return is sufficiently high to justify acquiring this and, and maybe uh, refurbishing it. New York's a little bit different because you have rent control and the future of rent control might get more onerous than less in the near future. So that makes them even more risky. I think when you get to toxic, in my definition, it's you're at a point where the cash flow may dwindle so much so that there's not a price at which somebody will take this now that's other than 10 or 20 or 30 cents on the dollar, right? And and you're seeing that in, in office and you've seen that in retail in the last couple of years that the capital markets have not wanted B and C, did not want to lend on B and C retail in any way, shape or form. And what happened was either we had extend and pretend or these assets were sold to the likes of Namdar or Kohan at a 25% basis to what they were, or less in some cases, to what they were in 2012. I think we are in that position right now with offices, that some offices are flirting with that toxic categorization. Um, the one thing I would caution about is while people may call retail and office toxic, within the segment, there's multiple grades. There will always be retail that people want. There will always be offices that people want. And the toxic talks about a sub-segment of those asset classes. Yeah, I think it's a, it's always toxic assets are always going to be an outlier when you look at the overall asset class. If you look at hotels at the onset of COVID, they were toxic for a period of time. No lender wanted to touch them at all. But we've seen a pretty strong resurgence with them coming out of the pandemic now. So a couple more things on banking before we move on to our CMBS delinquency rate. Part of the problem that led to the fall of SBB has been tagged to be the mismatch of its assets and liabilities. And our own Matt Anderson took a look at bank balance sheets to see what's happened since the SVB collapse. Yeah, so if you have been living in a cave for the last two weeks and haven't heard uh, Matt Anderson speak, uh, I would recommend that you get a good internet connection. You sit down somewhere and you listen to some of the stuff that he's been putting out. We had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He was on top of this and on top of the entire you know, bank ecosystem uh, almost immediately upon the collapse of SVB. And we put out a number of blogs. He's been interviewed by a number of uh, folks. And, you know, it's really a testament to just, we have tools, we have data, we have a lot of things that we built as a company here that allow us to, you know, make informed talking points and understand what's happening in real time. And Matt's really taken some of our products, Bank Navigator and a few others to list them as an opportunity to showcase you know, how he could take that info and turn it into actionable intelligence in the marketplace. So in this case, you know, banks have really responded to the recent turmoil by tapping their own credit lines, 
to borrow more funds and then holding those funds as cash. So in the week following the closure of SVB and Signature Bank, banks increased their borrowings by about $475 billion. That same week, they experienced net outflows of about $98 billion in uh, deposits, and then an additional $62.6 billion in outflows from the previous week. The increase in funds available uh, has nearly gone almost exclusively into cash, and currently they're sitting on about $400 billion worth of increase in cash holdings, according to the week ending March 15th. About 14% of that increase in, uh, in assets, $63.4 billion, went into lending. And in the coming weeks, you know, we're going to see how banks continue to operate if they're going to stay with this strategy or if there's going to be a, you know, a retrenchment when it, you know, when we're talking about, you know, sitting on this cash, et cetera. So, you know, if you want to see the report, uh, Matt does a much more exquisite explanation than what I just did. And there's some really nice charts and graphs that give you a really good visualization of what we're talking about. Just shoot us an email at podcast at trep.com. We'll be more than happy to share the report with you. If you want to get an image of Matt, just think that Matt is to banking what Bill James is to baseball. He knows all the statistics, the numbers, the history going back decades. Uh, he builds models around this stuff, predictions and so forth. And uh, I had a guy call me today who's not a bank guy. He's more of a CMBS and CRE guy, but now he's a bank guy. He's trying to figure out what this means for CRE. And he said to me that this Anderson guy, you know, I can't believe he still has a voice left anymore. He must be in such incredibly high demand. So Martha, maybe you can get Simon out there to, you know, comp his lozenges for the next couple of weeks. Let him, you know, expense those. He might be able to do that. Simon's listening. We're going to ask for that. Well, Lonnie, we're talking about the deposits that were an issue with the banks. And one of the things that uh, you had pointed out a couple of weeks ago was that maybe we missed a potential sign of trouble to come when the REITs had their withdrawals about four months ago, I believe it started. Yeah, I think, you know, while it's not completely the same as what happened with SVB, I do think there are some similarities in the sense that market participants that had money in an institution, in this case, it was the Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust B-REIT or the Starwood REIT, effectively said, listen, we, we think there's some stuff happening in the market. We're not necessarily sure these things have been marked to market. We don't think it's going to be a, a positive thing to keep our money in these funds going forward. So we want to cash out and redeem. And due to triggers that were in place, it prevented there being a run on the REITs. So they have a 2% redemption limit per month or 5% per quarter. And it appears basically every month since then, they've been bumping up against that redemption limit. So in the moment for us, we, we heard the headlines. I think we were a little bit distracted by some of the hoopla that came around that. There was definitely posturing from Blackstone and Starwood in terms of how healthy they were, et cetera, et cetera. University of California makes an investment in BREIT. Seems like everything's all forgotten and all good. But I do think if we look back on it, you know, that was kind of a precursor. I mean, effectively would have been a run on the REIT had they had the ability to just continue to withdraw funds. And so some interesting stuff from that too. It looks like BREIT can now be traded via an alternative trading platform. I think we might've mentioned this quickly last week, but effectively there's a platform called Lotus Markets. That's an alternative trading platform based in Overland uh, Park, Kansas. And they've started trading the shares. The same platform also started sh trading shares of the Starwood Real Estate Income Trust. And so it'll be interesting to see 
you know, the market's reaction ongoing with these BREIT and Starwood redemptions, because it appears that they haven't really let up even uh, after the, the investment from the University of California. You bring up a great point, Lonnie. And this is, I think, the big question going forward, because we're talking about an entirely different set of REITs now that are under fire than the ones that were under fire three or four years ago and remain under fire in the retail space. In the retail space, some even went bankrupt and yet still fought to hold on to their assets. They leaned in. There wasn't, other than a couple of Washington primes that were given back very quickly, there wasn't a ton for which people just said, I'm done, here are the keys, you know, moving on. Even Westfield has been very patient getting rid of their assets. What we don't know is how patient will these office owners be? And those REIT things that you brought up kind of came hand in hand with some big assets going back into special servicing and the comments being, we are looking to not support this asset going further. So there could be a second tell going on here. They're getting constrained with the outflows and the early indications are they're not going to have this stiff upper lip that the retail REITs have had over the last four or five years. What do you think about that? What are your what are your thoughts on, on that thesis? Yeah, I think with some of the retail properties, maybe they were just over leveraged, but there was some viable path forward at a reduced basis. And we've seen that with some of these operators that you mentioned that come in and buy them and then can continue them as a retail use. Some of these office buildings that are potentially challenged, unless something, you know, wholesale changes with people's attitudes around work from home. I don't think a lot of these office buildings are viable. And I think we're going to see them, to your point, maybe just turn their nose up on some of these buildings, let them go and move on down the road. So it'll be interesting to see how it actually plays out. Because in the same vein, some of the same people that have announced that they're walking away from some of their office portfolio were part of that real estate roundtable asking regulators to give some extend and pretend concessions which implies that they're willing to at least, you know, continue to fight for some of these assets that they get a little more favorable treatment on, on the charities that are upcoming. We had a great podcast a couple of days ago. It's out. We released it yesterday with Warren DeHaan of ACOR, and he made a great point and is consistent with what you're saying here, Lonnie, is that at least in the mall space, at the end of the day, you still had terrific location and land value. And we've seen some of those being taken over for life science. We saw the stuff done by the owner of the Rams out in California to build a lifestyle center and a new practice facility for the Rams in Cary, North Carolina. We've seen a repositioning. And he pointed out, uh, Warren did quite accurately, that you don't have that great land at the corner of two interstates with a well-heeled population within 20 miles that can make this viable for something else. So. I think that's consistent with what you just said. So let's look at CMBS delinquency. And I know when mainstream media is interested in CMBS delinquency, something is up. Yes, it's, I was going to say earlier, and then I got distracted for a minute. I never thought I would see this because for a long time over the last nine months, I've been saying that the problems in office would be episodic, that we wouldn't see this whirlpool of distress coming due. Uh, I never thought that I would see the Blackstones and the Brookfields and the Pimcos throwing in the towel as quickly as they have. But I think it's fair to say right now that the sentiment 
in office is as negative as it was for malls in 2017, 18, and 19. People that I've never heard be sensationalistic or frightened before uh, are calling me up, and, and now they sound kind of quivery. So I, I will throw that out there. So, and that segues into the delinquency number for this month which we will be releasing either later tonight or tomorrow morning, but we'll give you the early heads up. Uh, never before have I had people from the non-financial media reaching out to me, trying to get that early look at what it, at what it is. The positive sign is that the headline number dipped modestly. We saw a sizable increase last month, the highest level in many months, the biggest increase in quite a while. Uh, still not very high above 3%, but it was trending in the wrong direction. This month, the rate has dropped three basis points and is at 3.09%. Chalk one up for the good guys. The negative side of things is that the area that everybody is most concerned about, the office segment, another big uptick this month. So another 23 basis points higher. It moved from 2.38% in February to 2.61% in March. We are now up slightly over 100 basis points on office delinquencies in just 90 days. Everywhere else, the numbers look pretty good. In retail, they look great. Big improvement in retail. Modest improvements in industrial, lodging, modest uptick in multifamily. So not a lot of drama anywhere else, but in office, a lot of things to be concerned about. And just to give a little bit of context there, the historical high for delinquency was 10.34%. That was in July of 2012 coming out of the GFC. And then the COVID high was 10.32% in June of 2020. So effectively, you know, three or four months after we locked down and everything happened with COVID, we almost hit the, the you know, previous high. Just a couple of thoughts on that, man. It's multifamily, while it's not a big move, it's approaching 2%. It's a number that we haven't seen in multifamily, it seems like, in some time. And then with office, I still have a feeling that like we're going to have a month or two here in the next couple of months where, you know, it goes up 400 basis points or something instead of this, you know, 23 basis points like we saw this month. Well, we have an awful lot of loans reaching their maturity date. We've, we've talked about that in the past. We've put out research to that effect a couple of months ago, and we're keeping track of those assets all the time. More sublease space is coming out every day, so the, the list just keeps getting bigger. But I'll add one last data point since you brought up the throes of COVID, Lonnie. In December 2020, so six months or nine months after COVID began, the office delinquency rate was 2.18%. So we're now 40 basis points higher than where we were at the kind of the midpoint of COVID. And turning to CMBS spreads... We've seen them widen, which confirms what we already know. There's concern about commercial real estate. Yes, I don't have a lot of data points to look at primarily because issuance has been so light. Recently, we've seen nothing in the CRE CLO uh, marketplace, and we've seen only a handful of non-CRE CLO commercial real estate deals, either single asset or conduit. Uh, we did see a five-year deal price today. I'm not sure if that's publicly available yet. But what we're seeing right now is AAA spreads are out 
25 basis points, give or take, over the last three weeks. That probably doesn't mean the value of those bonds has fallen. They might have actually appreciated because the yield on the 10-year has fallen so precipitously over the last 10 to 15 days. They're probably higher in dollar price than they were when SVB was going under. But when you look down the credit curve, the pain is much more substantial. It dwarfs the amount of rate decrease we've seen in the 10-year yield. I would say yields on the triple B minus segment for new stuff is out 200 basis points. And that's if it's not heavily tilted towards office. When you're talking about older series stuff from 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, that is heavily office, heavily tilted towards 2023 to 2025 maturity dates. I would say that those triple B minuses are out 400 to 600 basis points, if not more. It is a tough slog right now for guys that bought those bonds six months ago when rates were low. Uh, it's probably a wonderful opportunity for bond pickers that have great credit instincts to come in and pick stuff up with mid to mid-high teen yields now that were not available to them uh, in the past. So we've talked about CMBX in a couple of our past podcasts. How, what's the impact of CMBX indexes? Well, we're certainly seeing widening there as well. I would say the widening has been comparable, not as much so on the brand new series, much more so on the series that are heavily tilted towards office. What we're seeing right now is that image of birds circling a wounded animal right now, trying to figure out where they want to play in this space. And it's probably too much detail to go into the pod today, and maybe it's more suitable for either a webinar or individual calls for people that are looking to play in this space. But if you're going to go long or if you're going to go short CMBX, there's a good argument for both, right? If you're going short, you're betting on this office market becoming a catastrophe. And you could make that case. Uh, there's certainly people out there saying that values are falling and the decimation is going to come fast because the owners are going to give back the keys quickly. If you're going to go long, you can make the case that this is going to play out a lot like the malls did, that even though there will be decimation, that decimation is going to take a really long time. And I'm really happy to take 10% insurance premiums for the next five years to offset whatever losses I might take down the road. It's not for the faint of heart. I think there's opportunity out there, but it really is a reflection of knowing what each series is backed by, knowing the data, and really knowing the commercial real estate space. Turning to some office stories, the quarterly office vacancy numbers for some urban markets are eye-popping. Manhattan's office vacancy rate is at a record high. More than 16% of space was empty as of first quarter, and that's according to JLL. And in San Francisco, nearly 30% of offices are vacant with 10 million square feet on the market for sublease, according to CBRE. And turning to Chicago, Manus, we're seeing more tech companies shedding their office space. Yes, uh, it's a broken record when it comes to me and office. 
far more crabgrassy stories than green shoots, but we'll try to run through them very quickly. Um, this is from The Real Deal out in uh, Chicago. They are reporting that Salesforce and Meta have put a combined 240,000 square feet of space out for sublease. In the case of Salesforce, 125K at a Heinz building on West Wolf Point Plaza. Uh, and in Meta's case, it is 115,000 square feet on North Franklin Street. From the San Francisco Business Times, Pinterest will vacate a full building in San Francisco, 150,000 square feet. And like several other firms over the last couple of years, they are taking a huge charge to write off this space. Uh, it may come in between 100 and $125 million to write that off. Recall, Google had said they were going to write off half a billion dollars of leases. In many cases, we haven't seen where those leases are going to be given back yet. Uh, that is another headwind that will be coming. In Atlanta, the Atlanta Business Chronicle says Deloitte is likely to vacate its space at 191 Peach Street. This particular property backs a $175 million CMBS loan um, that matures in 2026, one to watch. What is happening in Minneapolis? Another big swath of space coming out for sublease. We've seen before that Optum did not renew. They have several hundred thousand square feet. Thomson Reuters, doing the same. This week, Kelly Bush, who's been a great asset covering this market for the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal, announced that United Health will be vacating its property in Minneapolis St. Paul. Later in the week, she came up and reported that Blue Cross Blue Shield is cutting back. They are going to vacate their space in Egan, Minnesota. If you add up all the parcels out there, I think we are now at between 2 million and 2.5 million square feet of space in that market, a market that is not terribly big. So they may be catching up or now surpassing San Francisco as our biggest market of concern. The challenge with cities like Minneapolis, when they have a small subset of large corporations with really high employee count and large footprints, is it's great when the market's good and they're hiring people and the occupancy stable, but we're starting to see the, the flip side of that now with the market turmoil. When they start downsizing, it usually just takes one of them to start cutting staff and square footage, and then all of them start doing it. And I think what you just outlined, Manis, is kind of that, the you know, the uglier side of that stick in the, in the sense that United Healthcare now is just kind of added on to a list of companies that have already made these announcements, and it's not great for that local region. I do want to pivot to a couple of other stories very quickly, because I don't like to always go crab. On the green side of things in Chicago, at 175 West Jackson, which is a delinquent CMBS loan backing a CMBX 7 series. It's a big loan. It's been delinquent for a long time. A big tenant there, Innova International, has renewed 140,000 square feet there. So uh, a sign of life for that market. In Pittsburgh, the Gateway Center, which has had a below 1.0x DSCR for a while and missed its maturity date, 
the borrowers there were able to get their loan extended. Momentum has been good in that property. They've added a lot of new leases in recent months. Things are pointing in the right direction, and now they have another year to work things out. Lastly, a mixed green. Fisher Investments is moving to Plano, so Lonnie's neck of the woods from Washington State. The decision comes after the Washington State Supreme Court confirmed a ruling which allowed a state capital gains tax of 7% to go through as constitutional. So as an act of protest, Fisher Investments will take 3,000 employees out of Washington state and move them to Texas. And it's indication that politicians cannot do things without them having secondary impacts on commercial real estate, whether it's taxation, zoning, rent control, or other things, or personal income taxes. These do have follow-on impacts. And in this case, crabgrass for Washington state, green shoot for Plano. I would just say, welcome to Texas. And we promised we would cover a couple of other property sectors. So I know we've got a couple of hits on retail, multifamily, and hotels. So yes, I'll run through some of these very quickly. They're catch up from earlier in the month. In retail, a CMBX 6 New York Mall loan was modified. This is the Eastview Mall and Commons in Victor, New York. This maturity was pushed out for two years. In New Jersey, Bergen Town Center, $300 million loan goes to special servicing. Several Walmart store closings. At this point, only one has touched CMBS, and that is in the Brooklyn Center in Minnesota. More negative news for that market. The Deptford Mall in New Jersey, that loan was expected to pay off uh, when it matured in March. It has now gone to special servicing and will not pay off on time. In Scottsdale, the Fashion Square Mall did pay off. This is a $400 million uh, note that was refinanced, maybe the mother of all green shoots. The property is owned by Mace Rich. A 2013 single asset deal was paid off. That's a 1.7 million square foot mall in Scottsdale. A couple of other, tra other transactions that we liked uh, in White Plains, New York, the source has been sold. This is a 260,000 square foot Whole Foods anchored property purchased by Heinz. We'd like to see that. New York has been heavily hit in the mall space over time. And we did put out an important trading alert today. Our sister company, Commercial Real Estate Direct and Orest Manzi have been on fire this week. The Park Plaza in Little Rock, Arkansas has been sold Two things about that. The first is they were the first to report a sales price of $27 million, which was well above the top bid that was made on the property a couple of months ago. In fact, almost three times as high as the last bid we saw on that property. It probably means that a bond backed by that deal, which has been trading in the low 30s, might see a 40 or 45% recovery on that bond. And we touted this in a trading alert to tell people that if they see this bond out there, and it has been trading, it might be tantalizing at a price of 30 for those that are adventurous. So uh, I'll offer that up as a freebie for those that have not seen this trading alert. If you ping me tomorrow by email or next week, 
I'll show you what you missed in our reporting on Wednesday. Manis, if you haven't talked yourself completely with no voice, let's have what you've got left. All right. Multifamily, very quickly. I'll throw out two green shoots in New York, Midtown West. The Biltmore landed a $250 million refinancing of that property. Uh, that's a 464-unit luxury apartment building. That may have happened before SVB. As I've said, some of these stories go back earlier in the month. We've talked ourselves out of some podcasts recently. Also in Jersey City, a $200 million loan backed by six Jersey City apartment properties was also refinanced. This loan had missed its maturity date, but will now be paid off, it would appear, in April. Some, some positive news in multifamily. In the hotel space, some crabgrass, Alex Barrera of the San Francisco Business Times noted that Flynn Properties and Highgate Hotels had acquired the $56 million mortgage on the Huntington Hotel in San Francisco. They bought that asset, which was a $56 million mortgage. Uh, I, I wouldn't imagine they pay more than par for this. It's possible they paid significantly less than par. The hotel was last traded for about $100 million. So this is a 40 or 50 or 60% reduction in value in that market. And then lastly, the Crown Plaza Hotel in Katy, on Katy Freeway in Houston, that was resolved with, with a loss that was more than double expectations. The property was valued at 26 million before the resolution. Resolution proceeds totaled only 11 million. So a couple of crabgrassy stories in the hotel segment. Sounds like the Crown Plaza was really tired there. So I bet that property probably hadn't seen an improvement plan or anything implemented on that in some time. So hopefully at that price, they can either do something else with the land or maybe refurbish the hotel and make it viable again. And a programming note, Warren DeHaan, Manis mentioned in the beginning of our pod with Acor Capital, had a interesting podcast with our team. It's worth a listen if you're at all interested in what's happening in the lending space. You should check it out. I Shout just got out. a text in the last two minutes from a longtime podcast listener that said, the Acor guest this week was brilliant. So a ringing endorsement from somebody who's been around and, and listen to listens to us every week. So thank you for that. Shout outs. We've had a bunch of requests for some of our bank data. Timothy C., Dan Y., Dave L., Davis D., Zach, Margo, Steve, Ben, and a number of comments. Oz, very interesting podcast with Warren DeHaan just mentioned. He said he spoke with very optimistic inflection, but anyone listening should be concerned if we're truly in a market where a debt lender can get equity-like returns. So his opinion, something interesting to take away from that. Let me throw in the shout out from Tim from Nashville, who came in today, who is a weekly Saturday morning listener. And we're happy to have you aboard. First time we've heard from Tim and thank you for the, for the reach out. And Selma A., Loved our recent episode. Ian M commented on our mention in the Wall Street Journal. Deborah M, Deborah M, Cash is King. See the example from Tripwire here. Colin Y gave us some on the ground intel in San Francisco. Jacob M loves our podcast and some of the insights. Had some questions about debt funds, lease ups, and a number of other things. Haley C got to see an old friend and she still plays the podcast. Seth L 
So it's his Saturday morning property drive. And he did actually include a photo in that. So proving out that he drives around looking at properties with his tripwire playing. Jacob Deidre on Twitter likes Manus's regional bank message. If you recall, Manus was rallying the people, go to your community bank. Ed F, enjoyed the podcast. Being a UK-based listener with a focus on EMEA, it'd be great to have some of our stuff dedicated, but still finds our content very interesting. Lewis B had a number of things he wanted to comment on the Raleigh-Durham market, saying don't stick a fork in Raleigh-Durham yet. Still more to come. Yes, Lewis is a longtime listener and he checks in every now and then. And I think he's right. You know, we have had some negative headlines with pullbacks from Fidelity and others, but it's a really diversified market down there. And it's in stark contrast to what Lonnie was saying before about Minneapolis, big parcels with just a few industries and industry participants in Minneapolis. I think you have a much more diverse tenant base in that research triangle area. So uh, if I was betting, I probably wouldn't take the short side of that, that RD triangle area. Jackson M. interested in doing a Twitter space. I might have to check that out. Dietrich N. had a number of questions for us and was interested on the last episode, 188, where we gave uh, some additional historical perspective when we went down the laundry list of crabgrass. So he thought that was helpful. And of course, Manish, you know what today is, I have no doubt. Opening day. Is that where we're going with this? That's where I'm going. I knew. And of course, the Mets are playing the Marlins. Yeah, I, I I saw that uh, they put Justin Verlander on the injured list today. So that was a disappointing twist. But for those that think that it can't get any darker for office, I remind you that opening day is when hope springs eternal, right? That we are all going to the playoffs. We're all going to win the pennant and the World Series is just right around the corner. Sometimes those opportunities or hopes get dashed very quickly. I hope that's not the case with the Mets. But I do say that there will be brighter days for those baseball teams that are in the doldrums, and there will be brighter days out there for CMBS, CMBX, and the commercial real estate market. But let's go Mets. Hope springs eternal. With that, we'll close. Thanks to our producer this week, Julia Salmon. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send it to podcast at trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. Play ball.